Have you ever woken up from a nightmare and dreaded going back to sleep in case you're going to fall back into that dream again. Maybe you've had that thing where somehow you kind of know it's a dream and so you're able to drag yourself out of it or just the kind of horribleness of it just kind of wakes you up and then you're there in the dark and you're thinking, am I really going to close my eyes again? Am I going to fall back into that? What if waking didn't end the nightmare? What if, whether you were awake or asleep, you were trapped in a terrifying world of chaos and evil. Welcome to Daniel's world. Welcome to Daniel chapter 7, which we are looking at today, in which he has a horrifying dream, which he then realizes is actually a vision of the world that he is living in. Daniel was a Jewish man living in exile. He was living in the land of Babylon, where the God of Israel was not known, not worshipped, and where human sin flourished. If you are a follower of Jesus, wherever you are in the world today, you are living in a similar situation to Daniel. And that's why we've been studying this book, and that's why we're moving on to study Esther for the next two weeks, because uh, she also was a, a, she was a Jewish woman who was living in a foreign land and working out how to follow God in that. This is, and I know many people have described like the pandemic as a living nightmare, and I understand why we would say that. But there's a thing, isn't there? We can kind of be like, oh, those good old days about pre-pandemic, of course, because of all the stuff that's been added. But you know what? It was awful then as well. It was awful for many people. And what we're going to see today in God's word wants to give us a reality check of that. So we're going to read this chapter. It is written in a highly symbolic style that you might not be familiar with. I want to encourage you, don't sweat the details. This is about images making an impression on you. It is quite a long chapter, but we're going to read the whole thing because God gave us the whole thing. So here we go. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared... I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. 
The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is the word of the Lord. And today, it makes us ask, literally, what on earth is going on? Now, we are given a simple factual explanation in the text, right in the middle of it, verses 17 and 18. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And God could have just told Daniel that, because those are the facts of the matter. But instead, he gave us this entire vision. And we honor him when we engage with his word as he's given it to us. And we try to work out why he's given it to us in this way, what he's saying to us through that. So why don't we pray that he would help us as we do this? Lord, we, just, we worship you and we hear in this vision clearly that you are worthy of praise. And we want to know, Lord, how we should understand our lives and our world and how we should understand you. 
And so we ask, Holy Spirit, the one who reveals all things to us, that you would come now and work in me and in each of us, wherever we are, that we would hear you, that we would see you, and that we would respond to you and live in obedience to you. Amen. So what I want to do is give some interpretation of what's going on, and then we're going to look at how it applies to us today and how Jesus is the key to all of this. So the style of writing is called apocalyptic, and people often associate apocalyptic writing with what's going to happen at the end. And it can be about what's going to happen at the end, but what it's primarily doing is unveiling what's going on behind the scenes. It's about what's really going on in the world. Now, because there are elements of what's really going on in the world that are incomprehensible to us, just limited, finite human beings with small brains that we are, a lot of the language is symbolic, uh, it's in code, it's suggestive, so that we can have a sense of what's going on without necessarily knowing exactly what's going on. Now, some of those symbols, some of that code is meant to be interpreted and understood. And um, in this case, you know, who are these beasts? What on earth is going on, particularly with that last horn that's mentioned? What even are horns anyway? That kind of thing. It invites interpretation. Many people don't need a second invitation uh, to interpret this. And, and some of that is legitimate. So we've got help on this from Daniel, the book itself. If you were here a few weeks ago, um, we, we preached on Daniel 2, a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, clearly paralleled with this vision of Daniel, because there are four kingdoms on the earth, and then the kingdom of God comes and triumphs over all of those kingdoms. And Daniel, in that dream that the king had, identifies that the first kingdom is Babylon. So it's, that is a legitimate kind of, oh, well, this symbol seems to represent that place or that point of time in history. But as one of the commentators I was reading about this passage puts it, images speak truly and accurately, but not precisely. And so what we aren't trying to do here today is match every single detail of this vision with something that has happened or will happen in history. I think we're meant to feel that this vision is about the world as it currently is. I think Daniel was meant to feel that, and I think we're meant to feel that centuries later. The fact that the book of Revelation takes a lot of this language and uses it to describe things that happened far late, far after Daniel, I think also suggests that, that what's going on here is timeless more than it's necessarily a fixed point in time. So what do we see in this apocalyptic vision? Well, we see two locations, don't we? Earth and heaven, and they are very different from each other. The vision starts with the sea violently churned up by winds from every direction in a perfect storm. This is not Portobello Beach with that beautiful calmness that you kind of feel like you could just walk out on and you're like, I could be here all the time. No, this is a terrible, frightening place to be. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, the sea often represented chaos and danger, and that's clearly what's going on here. And a series of horrifying creatures emerge from these violent waters. Now, throughout history, humans have expressed their fears about the wildness and danger of the world around them through monsters. From Godzilla uh, to Nessie, these, store, these animals remind us, these beasts remind us of, of uh, our fragility and of the frightening nature of nature. But what we're seeing here is far worse than some very powerful creatures. Because what we're seeing here is us. Remember the interpretation. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. The kings and their, and their kingdoms are shown as beasts, not just because obviously animals give a sense of danger and power, 
but also because they have become subhuman. See, in the Bible's way of seeing creation, God is at the top, and then uh, we are here, humans are here, and then animals are meant to be be uh, above humans. Uh, Sorry, animals are meant to be below humans because humans alone are made in the image of God. We are to be his image bearers, and we're to rule over his creation. But these humans, these kings, have degenerated into becoming like beasts with their greed and their violence. Now, they may be at the extreme end of human behavior, but we are all on this spectrum. When we go our own way, when we reject God's ways, this is the path that we are on. Now, it's easy to identify this in other people, isn't it? And it can be easy to identify this in other kingdoms as well and say, clearly they're that one and clearly you're that one. But the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And I think these visions are meant to challenge us about that and also obviously to remind us that when you get a lot of humans working together, there can be great good, but there can also be great evil. We then go on to see a fourth beast, and the description of this beast just shows that there's an intensification of what's going on. There's no animal on earth that can be compared to it, which means obviously illustrators can just go wild. Usually they kind of aim for dinosaurs or something like that. But this beast, its destructive powers seem to have no limit. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it and break it down to pieces. And then these horns come out of it, and this horrible little horn. So horns are a symbol for strength. You ever see a stag or a rhino? You'll have a sense of, oh, they're strong, and that's what's going on. This horn comes from this beast, and it challenges God himself. It speaks words against the Most High, and it makes life terrible for God's people. It made war with the saints and prevailed over them. It shall wear out the saints of the Most High, we're told. This is terrible. It's chaos, violence, fear, horror. This is life on earth. Now, as I've been preparing for this this week, uh, I've been walking around where I live. I was, walking, I was just walking through Brunsfield, where it was sunny. And there were lovely cafes and shops selling nice things. And this vision's kind of going around in my head, and I'm thinking, are these, you know, are these things meant to be the same? This is what apocalyptic does for us. It goes beneath the surface. It reveals what's going on. It says even in the most beautiful, lovely places on earth, where there are human beings, there will be trouble. There will be evil. Everywhere and anywhere on earth, there are families and workplaces and neighborhoods and cultures and nations that are being ravaged by sin. Some of it's obvious to us. Some of it, we just try and keep at arm's length because we just don't want to think about it. And others of, other parts of it, we've just grown used to it. So this is the bad news. But it's not all that Daniel sees. So earth, chaos, violent, danger. But it's like a movie that suddenly cuts, almost disorienting from one scene to a completely different scene. The, the, the sea and the monsters, they kind of disappear for a moment and Daniel suddenly sees the throne room of God. And this next part of the vision contrasts with what he's already seen, but it also answers a lot of the fears and questions that he might have had from this scene. He's seen these powerful, mighty beasts and he must have felt so small and, and powerless. Now he's in the presence of God Almighty. 
And suddenly those mighty beasts are not the mightiest thing he's ever seen. God is the ancient of days. He existed way before the sea and way before all of these creatures. And what we're told about his hair and his clothes and his throne symbolize that God is a judge who has the wisdom to sort out right from wrong, the purity to persistently choose the right, and the power to enforce his judgments. There is no beast that is a match for him. Daniel lived as an exile. He felt outnumbered on a daily basis. But now he sees that God's kingdom is countlessly vast. A thousand thousand served him, we're told, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Christians, we often feel isolated, even in countries with Christian cultures like the UK. But 2 Kings 6, 16 says that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. When we see the throne room of God, we realize that this is the case. And then Daniel just sees the beast destroyed with almost anticlimactic ease. No movie director would do it like this. It's just suddenly destroyed. But that's what happens when God comes against anything in creation that wants to oppose him. Let's look at how this victory is won. We need to focus on a phrase that Daniel uses that becomes hugely significant. In verse 13, Daniel sees one like a son of man. Now, the most obvious explanation of this is that son of man means a human, because that's what a human is. And his direction of travel, he goes from earth to the heavenly court. But his mode of transport is divine. God alone makes the clouds his chariot, Psalm 104 tells us. And then this son of man comes to the throne room, he comes to the ancient of days, and he is given dominion and glory and an everlasting dominion. Now that is not what happens when people come into the presence of God usually. Because people are sinful, people have done things that deserve God's judgment and his punishment. So who is this who comes before God and God says, yes, have all authority on heaven and on earth? Over 80 times in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. It's what he likes to call himself. It wasn't a common phrase in the Old Testament. It wasn't a common phrase in the day in which Jesus lived. He is using it to bring our attention to who he is and how particularly this relates to Daniel chapter 7. He does this most dramatically when the high priest is trying to find a legal reason to kill him. In Matthew 26, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest hears that and says, that is blasphemy because I've read Daniel 7 and I know what that means. And so Jesus is crucified. And for those with eyes to see it, this is Daniel 7 being fulfilled. Because Jesus suffers all the greed and the lust for power and the injustice and the violence of those beastly kingdoms. Two of them combine to put him to a terrible death. It looks like they have trampled him down. But they don't realize that by him letting them kill him, He has defeated them. 
Because the power that these kingdoms have is the power of death. That's always the bully's threat, isn't it? Whether they're a school bully or a dictator, the power they have is, I will kill you. And Jesus says, try it. And they do, and it doesn't work. Because he is raised to new life. He is triumphant and vindicated. Colossians 2 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And having been raised to this new life, having defeated all the kingdoms of this earth, he is ascended to heaven. And he is given the kingdom. He is given dominion over all things. And he uses this great victory of a life that goes beyond death to bless all those who give their lives to him. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. <coughs> so, where are we? Where are we if we have put our trust in Jesus? We are between the granting of this kingdom to Jesus and its, a fi- and its final establishment when heaven comes down to earth. We are between judgment being declared on the beast and it being served by the beast's destruction. There is chaos here on earth. There is victory in heaven. And one day, heaven is going to come down and get the hell out of earth. It takes faith and apocalyptic vision to see that at present. So how should we respond then? Well, we are more fully aware of what's going on uh, than Daniel was because we, we have seen how this victory was accomplished. So Daniel uh, wrote centuries before Jesus. Jesus came and fulfilled that vision. And we now, we've read about it. We've seen it. And so our reaction needn't be exactly the same as his But we shouldn't dismiss how he responded. We are going to finish with a song of celebration uh, in a few minutes. Because that is how we should respond to this. But we need to think soberly about our situation first. Because twice Daniel tells us he was troubled by this vision. He says, my spirit within me was anxious. The visions of my head alarmed me. My thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed. Now, it's not clear exactly why he responded in this way, given this is a scene of victory. Perhaps he did it because he realized that the kingdom that he'd been serving for the past 50 years under Nebuchadnezzar was about to collapse under his successor, Belshazzar. Perhaps he was sympathizing with the suffering of God's people that he saw in the vision. That would be extremely like him and would be a creditable response. I think either of those responses would be legitimate. And to be honest, I'm not clear that what I'm going to suggest to you now is necessarily what he was experiencing, but I, it, I was reminded of it as I read this. And I think there are some similarities. So I, I don't kind of see or sense frightening monsters around every corner as I just you know, go through my daily life. But I do feel uneasy a lot of the time. What I mean by this is that there is, there's nothing neutral in God's creation. There's nothing neutral here on earth. This clash of kingdoms that we've seen described is going on everywhere all the time. And 
You know, so I, I see it. I see it when I watch TV, uh, when I watch films. I, I see it in clothes and fashion. I see it in social media posts. I see it in adverts. Sometimes, honestly, like I can be reading something that's on the back of like a really boring domestic household product. And there's something in it. I'm like, well, I know what you're saying to me at that point, And it's got nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And I know that sounds a bit strange. It's pretty tiring, uh, to be honest. It's, it's quite annoying. Um, uh, maybe you feel this. Maybe you feel this when you go to your workplace. Maybe even as you, uh, yeah, most, for now, the moment you kind of click to join the meeting, you're like, well, here we go. Or for those of you who are going into a workplace, you're like, you kind of feel yourself suddenly going into something that's different. Maybe it's just when you're on your phone, maybe the things you watch to kind of entertain yourself. Maybe the people you live with, you sense this. Now, to say that I sense the kingdom of darkness everywhere, even kind of saying it, I'm like, I don't really want to say that. It sounds overly dramatic. But I do feel uneasy a lot of the time. There is a, there's a dissonance. There's a discord. There is a tension. And I, I think that all of us who are Christians should experience this. Because we live in kingdoms that do not acknowledge our king. And this means that we must realize that we cannot trust our instincts or the ways of the world around us. We can't just think, well, I, I kind of think that way, or that's what everyone's doing. <laughs> that is not a category for following God faithfully. We have to keep asking when we see something, is this something that Jesus is doing? Is this something that Jesus likes? Is this something that Jesus loves? Is, it, is what everyone else is doing around us, is this how King Jesus wants me to live? It is okay to be troubled by those questions. And it is okay to be troubled by the conclusions and the decisions that they lead us to. So how is it even possible? This has been a long discussion in Christianity. Is it even possible to therefore live in the world if the world's like this? Well, Daniel shows us that it is. The first six chapters of this book, in fact, are full of stories about how to live this way. They demonstrate what faithful living in this world can look like. And there is a sense, and Daniel clearly lived with it, that there is an extreme difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this earth. It's, it's, light, it's, you know, it's, it's light and darkness. But Daniel and his companions were able to live in one of those kingdoms. And serve in one of those kingdoms. They discerned how to live with a a skillful balance. They accepted some aspects of Babylonian life and they rejected others. They had careers in the civil services that lasted for decades. And their lives were occasionally in danger. Because you can't have one without the other. And so Christians are not called to withdraw from the world. But neither are they called to be like it. In our Bible reading plan this week, uh, Colossians 3, uh, I found it really helpful as a way of understanding this. And I actually think there's some language in it that echoes Daniel 7. Colossians 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And when Paul describes what this looks like, he spends most of his time focused on how we relate to people around us. 
And clearly from what he says, the conflict between the kingdoms isn't to make us angry and aggressive or defensive towards others because that would be to become like the beasts. Instead, we are to fight, and that is a legitimate word, but we are to fight by being like Jesus, which is to mean we are to be pure and patient, humble, selfless, and loving. And Paul brings us all together by asserting again Christ's rule in the lives of his people. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You may have an earthly boss who is beastly. You do live in a country whose laws are made by men. But Jesus is your boss. He is your Lord. He's the King of Kings. You are to live as he lived. And as you do this, you become a vision like Daniel 7, although perhaps one that may be slightly more easily understood. So we're going to finish now, and we're going to finish with one of my favorite songs. It took me less than a second to decide that this would be our response song, because it's all about Daniel 7, and it's amazing. It's called Blessing and Honor. It's by a guy called Ron Canoli. And the words are a celebration of this vision that we've seen today. And the performance that we're going to show uh, matches that. It is from the early 90s. And so the fashion is from the late 80s. It's amazing. They are thrilled. They are playing their instruments to the best of their ability. There is a sense of triumph and victory. And I want to encourage you to participate in that. If you're here in the building, you can clap. You can kind of copy the swaying dancing uh, that they're doing. If you're at home, turn it up and sing because, you know, it's just a wonderful moment to celebrate. And we feel this tension, don't we? We're gonna, I know it's annoying when we sing songs that talk about singing. You're like, I can't. But we will. And we can anticipate that now. And we can feel this tension even in this moment and believe that one day we're going to sing. Behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to our King Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. Let's praise him together.